Welcome to the Smart Thinking Podcast. This is my dad, Ted. Welcome to the Smart Thinking Podcast. I'm your host, Ted Knightsky. Well, I've got a treat for us today. This is Craig Weber, author, consultant, expert, researcher, just all around great human being. I believe that many times in our personal leadership, we are in one of two positions, the position to pretend or the position to be professional. And I think that Craig is going to walk us through some pretty cool things here today to help us build our own professional leadership capacity so we can stop pretending sometimes in the meetings. Gets uncomfortable once in a while when you're expected to be in a collaborative environment and when you don't have the tools or the skills or the will to do what you need to do, well, it gets very frustrating. Craig is going to walk us through some great ideas. I strongly encourage you to read his book and enjoy this conversation between him and I. Now, I have to disclose something went wacky with my recording, so Craig's going to sound a little discombobulated 1990s on here, and I did my best to adjust it, and I'm really sorry it didn't work out perfectly, but listen to his message. Hear his ideas, practice his skills that you are going to learn, and get better for those that you serve. Well, Craig, welcome to the uh, Smart Thinking Podcast. Thanks for giving me some time today. And uh, I'm excited to have you uh, for our listeners here on the Smart Thinking Podcast. Craig is an author uh, and a leader and a speaker and a motivator. And uh, his, uh, uh, he's got a new book coming out he's going to talk to us a little bit about. But his last book, Conversational Capacity, is something now I've seen him do twice in trainings. And I'm really excited to have you on the podcast. So welcome, Craig. Thank you very much for the invitation. I'm looking forward to this. Yeah, so tell us a little bit about yourself. Where where did you grow up? Family dynamics, all those kind of fun things. Yeah, I grew up in Santa Clarita, California, in a suburb just north of Los Angeles. Um, and uh, kind of grew up there. And then I've kind of bounced around in life. I've kind of lived in Tokyo. I've lived in uh, Australia. I've lived in Hawaii. And I've lived in New York. So I kind of bounced around. But we moved back from Australia here 20 some odd years ago when I was setting up my own consulting practice. And we've been here ever since. And I travel for a living, so I didn't have a whole lot of say in that. And where did you go to uh, like grade school and high school? Uh, great question. So Rosedale Elementary School in Saugus, California, that's in Santa Clarita. Uh, that was my elementary school. A couple of really influential teachers there that actually had a big influence on the fact that I you know, write books today. Um, and then high school in Quartz Hill, California. So Quartz Hill High School. Awesome. And do you remember any of your teachers? Like, did did any of them say, hey, little Craig, here's what I want you to think about when you grow up or were there for you in unique moments? Yeah. Um, I still remember all my teachers. I can remember every teacher's name in elementary school from kindergarten on. Still keeping in touch with uh, one particularly influential teacher, my fifth and sixth grade teacher. I've had her for two years. And, you know, from time to time, take her to dinner and thank her. And she had a huge influence on me. I struggled as a student, you know, attention deficit disorder, really hard to focus. When I was really into a subject, I could really excel. But if I wasn't, I was really, really poor. 
Also went through a special speed reading program. My comprehension was high. But um, two teachers, Mrs. Griffin, uh, had for third and fourth grade, which is really fortunate. And then Mrs. Baxley, uh, who got married and became Mrs. Wolfson, she uh, had her for fifth and sixth grade. Both of them really encouraged me to write. So I liked to write at an early age, and I was really good at that. And they would, you know, I'd write a story, and they'd come up and read it in front of the classroom. And I loved that. So they were very, very encouraging uh, to me when I really felt inadequate as a student. So they had a huge effect on me. And then uh, Mrs. Wolfson, uh, my fifth and sixth grade teacher, we still keep in touch. She became a principal, then went into the, uh, the state uh, educational system as a uh, an, an administrator, mm-hmm. and then retired. And like I say, from time to time, check in with her. We talk by phone. I've taken her to dinner a couple of times to say thank you. So uh, <laughs> I love the fact that I still keep in touch with her. I think <clears throat> I think one thing for uh, you and others to recognize, right? So I, I'm on the professional end of that education. One is uh, ADHD is how I prefer to say it. Attention deficit hyperactivity gifts. Um, While others view it as a deficit, I believe that's just out of sheer jealousy for the fact that they don't have as much energy as we have. They can't process as fast as we have, as we can, and they're not as creative. So they got to put, you got to put kids like that in a box. And how awesome for your teachers to see that because a lot of people um, who have that ability to, you know, think fast and have all that energy they're very creative because their imagination is moving at a million miles per hour, and to be able to translate into in that into a career and then and then utilize that because of teachers right. is fantastic. Yeah, in fact, uh, you know, I used to look at it as a bug, and now I realize no, it's a feature, right? If you learn how to manage it, it's really a useful thing. You just have to structure the way you do projects and tasks very differently. And so, uh, yeah, I totally agree with you. I, I I couldn't be doing what I'm doing without it. So it's not a bug; it's a feature. Yeah, and people will constantly say things like, "How are you doing all of these things? How can you, you know, what when your mind and body feel guilty when they rest, mm. right? That's that's going to shift things around for you." So after <laughs> after high school, what was your journey? Uh, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I struggled in high school. You know, I had to take uh, extra classes at the local community college to get enough credits to graduate with my uh, friends because I'd flunked so many courses. You know, I'd get straight A's in English and history and government, and then I'd flunk other classes either because, you know, I didn't like the subject or I didn't like the teacher teaching the subject. So I really struggled. So I had no intention of ever going to school. But, you know, did a range of jobs and finally figured out that uh, corporate education and organizational development was what I was really interested in. So I ended up uh, at a little later age going back to school. So I went to Brigham Young University, Hawaii, got a degree in organizational development. Uh, Really an amazing program there at the time. And then uh, I wanted to keep going. So I went to Columbia University uh, and uh, into a master's program in organizational psychology. Um, and I really got interested in the work of Chris Argerus at Harvard, Don Schoen at MIT, and their work around organizational learning and dialogue. And then I also got interested uh, in the work of Ron Heifetz and Dean Williams at the Kennedy School of Government huh. and their work around adaptive leadership. You know, how do you, what's leadership look like in a messy, complex set of circumstances where the way forward isn't clear? And so my work really kind of sits at the intersection of those two bodies of work dialogue and adaptive leadership. I'm really proud of you for for sharing that. You know, there are so many people out there who think four years of high school, four years of college, career in life. And in reality, for the majority of people, it's really messy. And as you're trying to figure that out, um, I would love to do a whole hour of just what it's like to go to college in Hawaii. Um, Yeah. That had to to be pretty awesome. He's got a campus in Hawaii, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that had to be pretty awesome. 
And as you as you um, continue to use the the different learnings, you know, where did you start out? Did you go right into corporate training? Did you go right into boardrooms? Where where did you take that that learning of yours? Yeah, I had kind of a non-traditional path in that sense. And people ask me, how in the world did you start a consulting career so young, right? With just really, really young, you're right out of the gate, you're doing consulting work. And I was working with some pretty big companies at the time, 3Com Corporation, Palm Computing back in the day, a lot of work in Silicon Valley. And I say my real secret weapon for starting a career in consulting really, really early was ignorance. I just didn't know I shouldn't do it, right? So I just jumped in and said, what? I'm just going to start consulting with no clue that that was A, non-traditional, and B, real high failure rate. Hmm. But so, I, so ignorance. But what happened is after I uh, finished up in New York, Dean Williams, the gentleman I mentioned earlier, wrote the book Real Leadership and uh, Leadership for a Fractured World and uh, taught for years there at the Kennedy School at Harvard. He had taken a position down in Australia. He's a native Australian, helping a, a large bank go through a massive transformation process. It was an 85-year-old government institution being floated out by the government. And so it was a big change for these people. So he asked me to come down and help him kind of with the project. So spend some time in Australia working with the bank, gearing the entire management structure up for the change. And then after they floated it, I moved back to the U.S. Uh, around 96 and began my consulting work. So I just kind of spent a little time in a, in a bank working in the role and then immediately uh, went into consulting work when I moved back here to the U.S. Totally unaware that that probably wasn't the best way to go. <laughs> Struggled for a few years, but a few really dedicated clients that kept me afloat and then it just kind of started snowballing. So Yeah, well, that's that, that energy that comes from being perseverant and going and just continually driving forward. Um but what a horrible, horrible thing for you, as I think about it as a Wisconsin guy, to go from California to Hawaii to Australia. I mean, right? yeah, you knob. How yeah, awesome. It was, pretty, it, was, uh, it was pretty brutal, yeah, you know, but somebody had to do it. Yeah, we, and we were all very grateful that it was you. Um, yes, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was a great experience. So I feel really fortunate to kind of where life's taken me. And all, like you said, very fortuitous. I mean, it's not like I mapped this out. It's just kind of things unfolded. I like Joseph Campbell, right? Follow your bliss and doors will open. That really yeah. seems, that, that seems to hold true in life. You really follow something you're passionate about. You know, it's funny how things end up working out. But one of my early clients from 25 years ago, one of my first clients, someone who worked on a team at uh, a company in Chicago, we're working together again now. He's leadership development for a large healthcare system. He brought me back in. We just had a workshop yesterday with a bunch of senior people. And I love that. Because, so those people come back into your life and it just feels like a, a very holistic experience. Yeah, well, and I think one of the things that when you, because you're a teacher, Right, a consultant, but you're a teacher, and, and I was your student, and I, I really appreciate it. I think one of the most rewarding parts about your job, your journey, your work, your book, is uh, when you get to see those the audience like, oh, mother of mercy, I wish I would have been told this, you know, 15 years ago. This would have helped me so many times, and and right. in so many different ways. Well, and also a huge shout out. I don't think anyone has ever mentioned on the podcast before, Palm Pilots. So that's <laughs> that's excellent. Right. Oh, I, I thought that was my old Palm Five somewhere in here. Yeah, would, yeah. What, what I would give to go back to that level of simplicity, right? Like, guys, my calendar's beeping. I have to walk away. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Now my yeah, whole my life is with me. Andy, um, Andy Solom, wonderful guy. He brought that up when he introduced me to the group. He said, "You know, look at how things have evolved over the last twenty-five years." You know, I met Craig. We hadn't even launched the Palm Pilot yet. I remember sitting there looking at a prototype. 
And here we are, you know, doing a virtual workshop on Zoom and you know, things have really changed. But the way we converse with each other hasn't evolved as much, right? So technologically, we've seen a stunning amount of advancement over the last quarter century. But in terms of how people tend to interact, how they communicate, how they work with each other, not nearly so much. So I like that way of framing it. So we need a new set of skills for engaging in a more constructive way in this messier, more complex world we live in now. Yeah, I and I 100% agree with you, and and that's what really really draws me to your your mindset and and your work because. You know, we, we talk constantly about, you know, getting and acquiring the skills so we can charge in the storms that we are facing. Human beings are not evolving as quickly as the world around us. And, you know, Craig, I firmly believe, and people get really, really wild with me when I say this, kids are not changing. The world around them has changed. They're, you know, people will say, oh, they're, they're, this, this is the naughtiest group of kids I've ever seen. Their music is the worst. It's like, my parents hated Duran Duran. Their parents hated the Beatles. Their parents hated Frank Sinatra. Their parents hated, you know, Gershwin. And it just keeps going back, right? But right. but we stay the same. And, and while there's more technology in those different components, I think one of the critical pieces for us to talk about is, is how to grow ourselves while the world's moving very quickly to go back to some core tenets. And that's why... That's why I really, I really want you to talk to me or us about this idea that you have about dialogue as a discipline what do you what do you mean by that yeah i think that we need to be a little more rigorous in terms of how we engage with other human beings when we're dealing with significant issues we tend to you know if i'm making a keynote address you do keynote addresses i do keynote addresses i'll put a lot of effort in understanding the audience understanding the core message connecting my ideas to what they're what's going on in their organization i don't just walk in and do a keynote address shooting from the hip but a lot of times we do that when we walk into a meeting, we walk into a feedback session, we got a tough decision to make, we just kind of walk in and wing it. There's not as much rigor, there's not as much discipline to our approach. And I think that's one reason why, you know, there's so many complaints about meetings and so many conversations go sideways. Right. And so how do we structure conversations where there's greater alignment between the purpose of the conversation or meeting and the way we're engaging with each other in the, in the conversation or meeting? And so that's what I mean by discipline. You want to keep your intentions and your goals in sync. And what often happens if you're not on your game is that you walk into a conversation with really good intentions. But then things like our defensive emotional reactions well up and get in the way. They throw us off track. And so by discipline, I talk about three things we need to cultivate, three, th three areas of practice if you want to build what I call your conversational capacity one is awareness. We need to become more conscious of when our emotional reactions may be putting our effectiveness at risk. We need a clear mindset. I like Dr. Ali Akram at Stanford who points out that if you have a really clear mindset about something, we have mindsets about everything, she points out, whether we realize it or not. But if you have a really clear mindset, it makes you smarter in the moment, smart thinking, because you know what matters and what doesn't. So we need a conversational North Star. But then importantly, we need behaviors. We need a skill set. We need the ability to, even under pressure, even when we are being emotionally triggered, align our mouth and our mindset. And so that's kind of what I talk about. Dialogue is a discipline. We need to be far more conscious of what's going on, both internally and around us. We need a very clear mindset, a navigational beacon, so that even in the confusing fog of a high-pressure meeting or conversation, I know what to stay focused on. And then I need the skills to put that mindset into action. And so that's kind of what I mean by dialogue as a discipline. And that's why, like, what I love about that is I, I, I almost wish that like, I lived closer to you so I could sit down with you and map out how to teach this to middle school students 
and then high school students and college students. And the reason is, to me, the umbrella that covers all of what you just said is is developing the courage and the confidence to be able to do those three things. Because, you know, I've had the unfortunate pleasure of having to invite people to leave organizations. And the first time I had to do that as a 29-year-old assistant principal, I don't think I slept for two weeks knowing that it was on the calendar every night, creating the story in my head, your second step mindset, right? This person's going to hate me for the rest of their life. They're going to, they're going to, they're going to get angry. They're going to yell at me. I'm I'm going to, I'm I'm going to weakly respond, right? And I had been a varsity coach, a teacher. I had been a manager outside of education, but I had never like moved somebody out of their livelihood before. And when you walk through that, those three steps with me the first time, I thought like, this is so powerful because it, it will fuel the courage to have the right conversation. It will eliminate some of the strange narratives I will build up in my head. And the fastest learning I ever had was when I did finally get to the point of telling the person, we're going to be inviting you to leave for the following three reasons. They were like, oh, I can't believe I got to work here this long anyways. Yeah. And I, 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 was, I was shocked. Because the whole time I was acting, how would I be on the receiving end of this? And I had all my own biases, right? Because I think I've always been a good employee. I think I'm a hard worker. And I assumed that person thought the same. No, they were like, oh, man, how awesome that you let me stay here for the last three years because I, I thought I was a goner after my probation. You fired me years ago. Yeah, exactly. And then they, like, shook my hand, you know, and thanked me. And then a month later called and said, you know, the best thing that ever happened was you kind of shook me alive. And, and I landed on my feet. I was like, well, but then the second time, it wasn't any easier. And right. and your framework really, really supports. And I'm not talking about terminating people. I'm just being able to have those conversations. Yeah, no, you're exactly right. I had the same experience here recently. I had someone who wrote a paper they wanted to publish. They're in kind of a different field than I am. But they know I've written a couple of books. So they say, hey, will you check this out? Sure, happy to. So I got the paper. It was it was terrible. I was just like, this is not even readable. This is like really, really poorly crafted. It was more red, red ink on the paper than printed ink. So, but then I realized, oh man, I've got to have a conversation about this. And like you, I sweat blood for two days, worried about the conversation. I don't want to hurt their feelings. I don't want to deflate them. I don't want to look like a pompous, arrogant jerk. You know, so it's like, uh, so I still wells up. And so with discipline, you're able to recognize that emotional reaction and not get rid of it. That's the key thing. You're always going to deal with those reactions, those fears, those stories your brain starts telling you. But the idea would be to be able to set that aside and do what you need to do anyway. That's where the discipline comes. You're not getting rid of your fears. Like the buffalo, like you're walking into it, right? You're just saying, you know what? That's not going to go away, but I'm going to stay true to my purpose and try to engage with this person in a constructive, learning-focused way, and I really hope it works out as well as it could. So you, you don't get rid of those reactions. You warp your power through them. Yeah, and I think that's why, you know, what's so powerful for for our conversation today is you, you're going to you, – you build a herd around yourself of other people who can, one, teach you new mind frames – new languages, et cetera. But, but most importantly, kind of get you to courage. You know, that's the, the why I love the buffalo metaphor so much is because, you know, they have horns, male and female, and you can hook somebody in the caboose and be like, get your butt moving. You need to do this. And that's why, that's why like, again, like your text is something, you know, I teach in graduate programs like this. Your book is now going to be like mandatory reading and leadership development because there isn't any, I, I mean, there's, I mean, I'll honestly, Craig, there aren't a lot of people in the space of being able to just say, here's how to talk to each other and here's how to do it effectively. 
So with that, tell me a little bit about one like one thing I want to come back if it's okay to something you brought up a minute ago. You know, how do you teach this to middle school kids or even elementary school kids? My brother Randy was a sixth grade school teacher at public school here in Los Angeles for years. Just retired. Um, and he was embedding the conversational capacity curriculum into sixth grade year. So he had kids who were getting good. They, they understood the awareness part of the discipline. They understood the mindset. Uh, and it was amazing to me the amount of progress he made. And so one thing I've heard in working with, uh, you know, executives and uh, CEO groups is, why do I have to train my people for this? Why aren't they learning it in school? And so we're actually looking at, you know, a whole line of work to help, you know, administrators, faculty members, and students kind of get better with this stuff. So my brother just did a session. He started a project with a, a, a school district in California. And so that, I like that you brought that up because that's something I think we need to focus on is how can we help people at an earlier age start developing these skills? I wish I would have had a little more discipline when I was oh. younger. But it's tools, right? So it's yeah. I, I run um, student leadership uh, certification programs. And and again, like you, I'm, I'm the CEO of CISA Six. Like I'm, I have a regular job, and then to like occupy that little ADG that I have, ADHD, <laughs> like I'll grab other things to do, and, and being around kids is so powerful. And what I find all of the time is they just have never been exposed to the tools to have the conversations. I mean, being empathetic, like. And, and like you, when I'm in CEO groups and people spout off like, how come I have to train people to do these things? I know that same person sitting right next to me is like, this is amazing. This gives me a framework. They didn't know either. There is no graduate school for common sense conversations. And, and we just have to be able to model it. And that's what's powerful when you work with kids, teachers, parents, CEOs, whomever, is that it's never been modeled to them. Nobody's ever sat calmly across the table saying, uh, using a language of like you know, listen, I, I feel like I'm I feel like I'm in win mode right now, so I just want to step back and I want to give everyone else the opportunity to speak. So I'm going to be quiet. So right. when when you taught us that language, like it unnerves people when people like you know you you said you kind of are more of the minimal side of the scale, and I'm I'm way on that win side. But when I'm on that when I'm in that mindset, like when I'm really quiet, it unnerves people, and it makes them minimalize even more. Because we got right. where's yeah. he right, where's he feel? So I'm going to go back to that, but I appreciate that, and that's something like with you and your brother, you know, there, we, there should be greater conversations on how to bring this to um, children and their teachers, because the teachers as well struggle with having difficult conversations with each other. In right. Our, in our business, we have parents with administrators, right? The frictions and tensions there. I've done work with a number of. I did work with the Waldorf School in Vermont. You know, there was it was kind of a triangle of dysfunction if you will right you had the parents association was pulled into some of the dysfunction between the teachers the administration got sucked in it was just this dysfunctional loop and so you had to get the whole school including the parents association on the same page about how do we agree to work with each other when there's a disagreement when there's some change when personalities may not click let's get on the same page about how we agree to engage with each other which is a really fun project but you're absolutely right it's really hard work and it's really important work so the way I think about it, even more important, we give these people skills for doing that work in a more focused and effective way. Right. In our business, we have something called professional learning communities. I, I, they're pretend learning communities. People show up and fake it, right? So right. so with that, tell me, uh, tell me a little bit about the, your idea of how uh, a culture really can be defined by how negative information flows up. 
Because that was a yeah, that that was a circle star highlighted set it on fire comment that you made. I love that. Yeah, the the idea I often bring up, especially when I'm working with executives, is that you, know, you can measure the health of your organization, whether it's a school, a business, or even a family or a community, by how well negative information flows up the chain of command. Does it flow up quickly? Does it flow up clearly? And does it go where it needs to go, or does it get stuck somewhere, watered down, sugar coated? And all too often, that flow is pretty anemic. And so I think from a leadership perspective, what's the work we need to do to make sure those feedback loops from the bottom of the organization back up to the top are functioning in a really effective way or we're flying blind. But the other point of it that we talked about is that the problem with that is that nothing lowers conversational capacity more predictably than the presence of authority. So the very people who need to be building a healthy organization are often one of the primary reasons it isn't that healthy, not because their intentions are bad but because they're not carrying their authority in a way that takes into account how people tend to respond to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that lack of predictability uh, in the weirdo hierarchies that we live in is a real deterrent uh, for, yeah. for people to be candid and successful. Yeah. So, yeah, a few things more frustrating than working for someone who's emotionally unpredictable or emotionally volatile, right? I'm going to bring this up in the meeting, but I don't know which boss is going to be there today, right? Is it going to be the angry, reactive boss? Is it going to be the calm, patient boss? Somebody in between? It's like kind of roll the dice and kind of see how it goes. That does not enc- uh, encourage a lot of vibrant feedback up the chain of command. Right, and and that lack of predictability or at least the inability to have the conversation of like, listen, I'm not in a good headspace to have this conversation today, so I'm going right. to step out of the room and I want you to have it in my absence. Like those, the, that type of maturity is pretty difficult in right. an organization. A kind of metacognition, right? Yeah, right. So you're into, yeah. So tell me, tell or not me, tell us about the the sweet spot. Okay. Sure. Um, So I talk about a place called the sweet spot in a conversation, and that's where things are open, they're balanced, they're constructive, they're learning-focused. It's where the really good teamwork occurs, good decision-making, and smart thinking, right? Smart thinking podcast. Uh, So what defines the sweet spot? It's that place in a conversation or in a meeting where two critical things are in balance at at, at its base. One is candor. The conversations are very open, straightforward, honest, and direct. You're not wondering what... Your colleagues are thinking about the issue being addressed because candor is extremely high. That's really important. Hard for smart people to work smart if they're not being candid with one another. However, as we've all seen, unhinged candor, not a good thing. Right. So in the sweet spot, it's not just candor. It's balance with lots of curiosity. People are open-minded. They are inquisitive. They're intellectually humble. They're eager to learn. So when a difference of opinion comes up at a faculty meeting, let's say, you don't see people getting upset, defensive. You see them getting interested. Okay, we don't see this policy change the same way. Let's slow down, dig in a little bit, and see why we see it so differently. Do we have access to different experiences or information? Let's get it on the table. It might change the calculus here. Are we interpreting the available information in different ways? That could be interesting to look at, too. So that's where the good work gets done. When we're able to maintain that really critical balance in the sweet spot, candid and curious, and when people start triggering out of the sweet spot, it's usually because they've let go of one pole or the other. If I'm in your meeting and I let go of candor, I become overly guarded and cautious. If I let go of curiosity, I become more arrogant and argumentative. And so I define conversational capacity at both the individual and the collective level. So it's both an individual competence and a collective competence as the ability to stay in that sweet spot under pressure in circumstances that are exerting a lot of centrifugal force trying to pull you out of it. And so what are the skills we need to acquire to do a better job of staying in that balanced state, even when circumstances 
and other people perhaps are trying to knock you off balance intentionally. That is awesome. Yeah. And that's, that's why, you know, you, when you had brought up just those two simple pieces, right? You know, that's, that is aspirational your entire life to be in that sweet spot of that candidness and curiosity. And I, and, and we're not going to get into it on the podcast. You got to read the book or, or be with, be with Craig to hear this because at the end of the day, what's really powerful for me in that, in that, uh, in your process that you put together is the getting people to come into that center part. And one of the things that you talked about, which I really wanted to talk about today as well, was, you know, you talked about getting it all on the table. But tell us about your kitchen table growing up. Because when you shared, you know, when you talked to the, you gave that example of the exec and, hey, tell me what your kitchen table was like growing up. And then you told us what your kitchen table was like growing up. As soon as we clicked off of the training with you, everybody turned to each other and was like, what was your kitchen table like growing up, Ted, and Jean Marie and everything else? So tell us what your kitchen table was like growing up because then I want to share mine and then have a, a quick dialogue about how awesome that was. Sure, sure. Happy to do that. So one of the things I'd point out is there are a range of variables that determine which way we tend to leave the sweet spot. You know, culture is a big one, and that can be, you know, national or ethnic culture. If I grew up in Japan, one of these tendencies is more likely to be dominant than if I grew up in New York. So uh, if I grew up at my dinner table, you might be very different than growing up at someone else's. So family culture, regional culture. If you grew up in uh, Wisconsin, you might be a little, you know, your, your relationship to the sweet spot might be different than if you grew up in New York. Right. <laughs> so the dinner table is a big variable, uh, partly because, as I put it, it's the longest workshop you ever attend. That's a lot of training, right? And basically, every night for 18 years, you're in a training session learning how good people operate. And at my dinner table, we avoided conflict. Nice, agreeable conversation. You don't say things that will make the dinner table uncomfortable. You don't put people on the spot. And so I grew up in an environment where it just kind of absorbs into you after all those years. This is how good people should operate. They don't rock the boat. They don't put people on the spot. They don't make things uncomfortable. So fast forward, I go to school, I go to work, I'm in a meeting, and my boss puts something on the table that I think, oh, no, 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 that's a bad idea. That is a really bad idea. I'm going to raise my hand. I'm going to say something. (laughs) But then suddenly, among other things, 18 years of dinner table training kick in, and I have a hard time saying what needs to be said. And so I tend to leave the sweet spot and become less candid. Whereas I talked about in the workshop, uh, The Flamethrower, a gentleman I met in Arizona years ago, and he said, my family dinner table was nothing like yours. And my dinner table, rabid religious and political debate was quite normal. We just just went off on each other. So it's an interesting lens through which to look, right? There's a lot of variables, culture, personality, life experience, education. But that family dinner table is a big one. We often give it short shrift. And so you all often ask, you know, a great thing to ask your team members, like it sounds like you did this, is that, what was your dinner table like growing up? It's the longest workshop my colleagues ever attended. It'd be nice to know what they were trained. Yeah. And, I, and that was such a, a point. Well, that's a great, uh, it was such a great moment for all of us because, again, we are um, where we've been in our experiences. And it doesn't matter, you know, I'm in my 50s. I, I still revert back to, you know, nine-year-old Teddy when I sit at my, at my original family's table. And uh, when we started to just have the conversation, so what we did was we, we said, all right, three words that describe your dinner table growing up. And mine were competitive, sarcastic, silent. Oh, and, and I'm the oldest of three brothers. You know, we each got a glass of milk. 
there was always one glass that seemed to have a little bit more, so you raced to the table to lick the glass so your brother couldn't get it. You know, then you'd sit down, and my dad would eat at 100 miles per hour and not say anything, and my mom had cooked the whole time, and she wanted to enjoy the meal, and then my dad would get up, and then we'd have these conversations, and, and it would. my mom was very stimulating that way, but there was just a lot of, like, sarcasm. Everybody was always kind of, you're always level set, right? Nobody was bigger than anybody else. Well, when I shared that with some of the people at my table, I, their eyeballs looked like something out of like a Halloween cartoon. They were so big. They were like, well, they, you make total sense now. So right. I was like, I get you now, right? Oh, that's where it comes from. Yeah. And it's something I would encourage other people who are listening when they're working with teams. Just take a moment. Like, just what was your dinner table like growing up? But there's no yeah. biases there. There's no, there's no ethnic. It was just, this is what my dinner table is like, right? Yeah. And like you had pointed out with the executive, right? His parents, I think they were both trial attorneys or something. So right. like, yeah, both trial lawyers. Yeah. Everything's a, everything's an argument. Absolutely. That's a skill they want to hone deliberately in their kids, right? Hold your own in a debate, craft a solid argument, don't back down under pressure, and dinner table is practice time. Right. And so he had a very different experience than I did. Yeah. And and so he's in a meeting and he gets triggered. He tends to become overly candid and less curious, whereas I tend to go the other direction. I shut down and get less candid, right? So we've all everyone has to put work into working in the sweet spot. What I I was once asked, is the sweet spot in a place in a meeting where everyone's comfortable? I said, no, far from it. In fact, it's usually the place in a conversation or meeting where everyone's uncomfortable. Because if you're really high on candor, you're going to have to put a little extra effort into being curious. And if you're really low on candor, you're going to have to kind of build those muscles and kind of learn to be a little more direct than perhaps you're comfortable being. So it's actually the place in a meeting where everyone's probably uncomfortable to some degree because they're all having to do a little work to maintain their balance. Well, and I think, Craig, I mean, describe for us, what does that actually physically feel like? Yeah, that's a great question. So the, the phrase I would use is productive tension. So, you know, I think a way to think about it, I actually coach some of my clients around this. How do you know if we're in the sweet spot? Well, partly you're going to feel it. If there's not enough candor, it's going to get boring. It's going to get a little lifeless. People are going to start drifting. They're doing tic-tac-toe on the agenda because we're just not talking about things we need to be talking about. And if it's low curiosity, you're going to feel the heat go up. It's going to get heat. It's going to get tense. People are going to start you know, getting upset. You're going to see it and feel it. And so I think what you want to look for is the place where there's productive tension. There's high candor, and so it's not like we're messing around. It's not like a safe, casual environment. People are really putting their ideas on the table, even and especially when they disagree. That's where the learning tends to occur. But at the same time, that curiosity keeps it from overheating. And so uh, there's a productive level of tension when a group's working in the sweet spot. Yeah, and you know, like me, I say a lot of things, and people come back and they repeat them to me. And I have what I call tattooable quotes. And one of your tattooable quotes was maintain intellectual humility and cognitive flexibility. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And that that that's just that's just so perfect, right? Like so walk in there almost Ted Lasso like, right? I don't know if you watch Ted Lasso. Of course. Yeah. yeah I mean maintain curiosity, Walt Whitman yeah, at all barbecue times. Sauce. Yeah. Barbecue sauce. Best dart scene ever. Yes. Well, um, no, I think that's right. And I think because again, your 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 podcast, smart thinking, right? If you want to smart you want to think smart. I think learning to hold your views as hypotheses, not truths. You're more intellectually humble. You're not as wedded to your current perspective, which makes it easier to, and even more likely, you're going to be curious about the perspectives of others because what can they teach me about the problem? And then I think what that translates into is the cognitive flexibility. Right. right? I, and the way I describe it in my work is I help people and organizations adjust their thinking to fit a new problem. 
where what many people in organizations do is interpret a new problem to fit their old thinking. And I think we need to get better job in a world that's changing rapidly of adjusting our thinking to fit new realities rather than interpreting new realities to fit our old thinking. You know, like a decade ago, I was told the new definition of IQ is the ability to learn, unlearn, and relearn in a very short period of time. And that's the skill that you are talking about. Like right on the spot. Ignore your position that you came in with. Be curious. Ask questions. Figure out, you know, is it a hill worth dying upon? And if it is, make sure to maintain that curiosity in that sweet spot without being so candid that you're just frustrating everybody around you. And the reason I asked how that feels is because I know what that's like for me when that's happening because I, I have this really weird combination of anxiousness and excitement. Like I'm, I'm like, I'm like, I, I like, it's, it's almost how I felt when I played soccer in high school and college, like walking out on the pitch until, until the game was in motion, there was this just really weird feeling. And that's, I, I, and what you brought to our attention was that's good. Right. Cause too much comfort, not so good. Not so good. Right. There's no tension. Uh, as Ron Heifetz likes to say, without a little heat, nothing cooks. Right, and that's well. One of your other great sayings was the uh, "bring more heat or bring more light than heat." Yeah, yeah. You see a lot of conversations where it's the opposite, right? More heat than light. Yeah. Instead, yeah, yeah. So, in these two polar um, positions, and then I've got one more question. We'll wrap it up here. You know, what in your book and your trainings you talk about? You know, minimalists and winners. Um, you know, describe those two for us so that people can identify when they're in a meeting, you know, their own behaviors and, and become empathetic of, of others. Yeah, sure. Happy to. So, you know, one of the things I talk about is balancing candor and curiosity under pressure is a very simple idea in concept. But in practice, it's really hard to do because our emotional programming works against us. And there are two powerful emotional reactions grounded in the fight-flight response. So these are not minor emotional responses. They are deep-seated reactions to a perceived threat, whether it's a physical threat, a social threat, or an ego threat. And when they trigger, they can pull us out of the sweet spot in a scary way. You know, nurses not speaking up in the surgery when they see a surgeon opening the wrong leg in a patient. Co-pilots not speaking up on the flight deck of an aircraft. Again, not a minor tendency. So the core competence at the awareness level we help people learn is to catch it, name it, and tame it when these emotional reactions are getting triggered. Catch it, name it, tame it. That's kind of the core competence. <coughs> Excuse me. And what we want to do is give these emotional reactions a label so we can name it. You know, psychologists talk about, you know, the labeling the emotional reaction gives you more control over because it both dampens the emotional reaction and it activates a different part of the brain, what Matthew Lieberman at UCLA calls the brain's braking system. So your emotions are pushing down on the gas pedal, labeling the emotion is like pumping the brake. So we talk about two. And what often wells up in a really difficult conversation is a strong need to minimize the level of negative emotion, tension, discomfort, or risk. I want to give my friend some feedback on this paper he wrote because I really think it needs a lot of help, but I'm worried about upsetting him, looking like a jerk, hurting his feelings, deflating him, making him stop writing forever. And so I got this, this fear, and if I'm not careful, that need to minimize pulls me off my game. I water it down. I don't give him the feedback he really needs. And so I need the ability to go up. There's my need to minimize tapping me on the shoulder. Mm-hmm. I need to be careful here. So the, the reaction doesn't go away, but I have it. It doesn't have me. The need to win is on the other side of the chart. And there's nothing wrong with winning. I'm very conscious of this. You know, play golf, tennis, or chess. That's what makes it fun. So I always use the – I talk about win, the win tendency with quotation marks. The need to win. 
They need to be right. They need to get my way. They need to sell my view to the group. They need to get other people to adopt my point of view and run with it. And when that need to win triggers, curiosity tends to go out the window. It just gets in the way, right? I don't care what you think, Ted. You're wrong. And so we need the ability to catch it, name it, and tame it when our need to win or our need to minimize is putting our balance at risk. So you've got more emotional awareness. Or as someone who reviewed my first book said, conversational capacity is, in essence, operationalized emotional intelligence. I like that because you're more cognizant of when your emotions are working against your good intentions and you're able to set those emotional reactions aside and focus on what matters. So catch it, name it, and tame it is really key. And you want that ability to catch it early. Most people grossly underestimate how aware they are. When you need to win is trying to pull you off balance. You want the ability to recognize it at a one when it's barely a whisper in your ear and not when it's a 10 and you're Will Smith at the Oscars, right? So you want to catch it at whisper, not Will Smith. And I think that takes some work. I need to develop my ability to become more conscious of the situations where these two emotional reactions tend to throw me off balance. Yeah. And I mean, that's such a powerful point. And what I love, I love, I had not heard you say that before about operationalizing emotional intelligence because there are two scales or two ends of that scale, right? I mean, there's people with no emotional intelligence, and there's people with so much that you know they're gonna they're gonna minimize everything, and they're not gonna be able to name anything because they're just gonna want everybody to be placated, pleased, or so to 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 put it in place that process. Because one of the things we talk about on the podcast all the time is every time a problem emerges, you have to put in place a process, and the problem that we're dealing with that you help us solve is the ability to to be the best version of yourself when you have to collaborate. And seek that sweet spot. And that's why, like my other tattoo, right? So left arm, right arm. The Another thing that you said is if you enter the meetings, uh, the one thing you have to remember is every time you get in there, your job is to be right at the end of the meeting, not the beginning of the meeting. Right. Where, where, where did that come from? I mean, that's just, it's almost that's like a, a it's like a psalm. Time. Yes, yes, yes. Isn't that wonderful? That is actually from David Coates, C-O-T-E, the former CEO of Honeywell. And that was his observation. My job is to be right at the end of the meeting, not at the beginning of it. And I think I would add to that, then your job is to build a team that can help you get there. And so if your job is to have things figured out, and I, the way I would, someone pushed back on this yesterday, actually, said, well, is it really about being right? And I said, well, we can get you know wrapped around the actual and the language. But my job is to be more informed at the end of the meeting, fully informed at the end of the meeting, not at the beginning of it. I need a team that can work in the sweet spot with me to help me wrestle with the issue, to think it through, to look at it through multiple lenses. I need people to push back on a bad idea or highlight a risk I'm ignoring. And so that requires high conversational capacity because often my authority is getting in the way of people's ability to give me the very thing I need. <laughs> and right. so we need to learn to carry our authority in a way that helps our teams help us think more intelligently, to expand and improve how we're looking at an issue. I just had great empathy for you when you were sharing that, and I went into win mode when you said that somebody challenged the word right and missed the point, <laughs> right? Because like my, well, I, I have I have probably eleven triggers, and one of them is semantics. Like, right. don't, if you're going to pick up on one word, right, and go off on that word, I'm going to take a break. When you're done, I'll come back. Like it's just you're missing you're you're gloriously missing the right 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 it's kind of like getting into the weeds a little bit at the expense of the real learning right right like, okay. right and then everybody no in the rest of the group goes to minimize mode and then opens their phone and watches candy fall from the sky so <laughs> <laughs> Craig tell us about your newest project and what you're currently working on because <clears throat> we're as an audience lagging a little bit with your expertise so we're gonna catch up by reading conversational capacity but what's what's your newest Great. work what are you working on. 
Fantastic. So conversational capacity kind of is the first book, and that kind of gets into the, the, the core ideas around conversational capacity. What started coming out is, hey, I really like this, but it's, it's hard. This is a discipline. This takes practice. I need some help. So I actually wrote a second book, uh, Influence in Action, which is a, a deeper dive into the discipline and a workbook for an individual. So if you want to build your personal conversational capacity, this book will walk you through it. There's a whole chapter on the awareness part of the discipline, a whole a whole section, I should say, on the awareness part of the discipline, a whole uh, section on the mindset, and a whole section on the skill set. And I counted up the other day, I think it's about 81 different practices outlined for doing, getting better in each of those domains. So it's a real, real workbook. The book I'm working on right now, the conversational capacity advantage, is how you can build your collective conversational capacity. Mm-hmm. So you got a management team, an executive team, mm-hmm. a school district. Um, how do we build our collective ability to work in the sweet spot? And then how do we do our daily work as a vehicle for the practice? So every meeting, every decision, implementing strategy, giving feedback, all the things we have to do anyway. How do we look at those as actual practices for spinning up our ability in a very systematic way? So that's kind of what the current uh, the current project is. And then I'm writing a few articles that people are interested. One on conversational capacity and psychological safety. Hmm. You can find it on LinkedIn. Uh, there's one I recently on adaptive engagement in messy, complex, changing circumstances. We often need a higher level of engagement from our teams and our people, but often you get the, just the opposite. People are vibrating at a high frequency. They don't see things the same way. They're scared. They're nervous. They're frustrated. And so right when you need the most engagement, you'll often see people start disengaging. And so how can we as leaders build our team's ability to stay engaged, even in circumstances where it's really challenging? And then I'm working on one now on strategy, which I'm really liking. How does conversational capacity link to strategy? And kind of a different way of thinking about strategy and then turning strategy into a practice for building your collective conversational capacity. Well, and that's a beautiful point. I mean, when you're talking about being strategic, a strategy is a change in a behavior. Your process supports a, you know, the abilities and skills needed to right. do that. And I, I just wrote down that next article because... The only thing prohibiting someone from being able to do this is will. Yeah. Yeah, willing to just put in the work, right? Yeah, I mean... It's like any skill or discipline. Right. And I like Ron... Roger Martin informs my thinking a lot, the great business leader. Uh, and uh, he says, a strategy you can't implement isn't a strategy. And so conversational capacity is sort of a core kind. It's, not a, it's a wish list, maybe. It's a, it's a, you know, it's a, you know, wouldn't that be nice? But it's not a strategy if you can't mobilize your team to put it into practice. And so I think, you know, being able to operationalize strategy and deal with the challenges, the trade-offs, the tough choices you got to make, the changes you got to wrestle with. If your team doesn't have the conversational capacity to do that work, you don't have a strategy. You have a Charlie Fox tribe. Yeah. And I, I, <laughs> um, I think the awesome part of that, is simply simply put, adults, when we work together, will come together without process and fail all over each other because of our fear of how the other person is judging us. And, and that lack of curiosity of where do I stand with you and the ability to just be honest um, goes back to you know what, what people need to do. So those, those projects are timely, uh, they're timeless, and, and they're fantastic. So, Craig, this was aw- this was a great conversation. Uh, I'm sure everybody's going to take a ton out of this, and I I'm just really really grateful for your time. And if people want to learn more about you, where where would you send them? 
Yeah, uh, conversationalcapacity.com. You know, there's a lot of resources there. A lot of all the articles are posted there too, links. Uh, so there's a lot there. And then you're certainly welcome if you have questions to reach out, connect with me on LinkedIn. I, keep, I post a lot of material on that and kind of keep people, uh, you know, um, informed about articles I find that relate to the subject, etc. So, yeah, I'm easy to find. If you Google conversational capacity, I will pop up. Yeah, so excellent. reach out. And uh, if anyone out there in the educational space uh, is interested in maybe talking a little bit about what this might look like in an educational system, this is what we're kind of, something we're really excited about now and say work. You know, I've done a lot of work in the corporate environment, but I think there's this whole field out there of education that could really benefit from some of these skills. Like I say, both students, faculty members, administrators, and sometimes the relationships between those three groups could really benefit from some of this work. So we're looking at ways of trying to support that community. Well, and I think that's one of those pieces for those of us who work in the educational spaces. We've got to get out of listening to other educators tell us how to always behave in certain environments because this is a this isn't a teaching thing. This is a professional uh, and a personal piece, and and you do a really nice job of explaining that. So I encourage everybody go onto that website, pull the articles. Uh, use them in their relevant uh, matters and fashions and become more tactical as we try to get better at working together uh, in an effort to create more people willing to charge into the storm. So, Craig, thanks for your time today. And and if you want another uh, podcast guest, you might consider my brother, right, the school teacher who actually taught this to sixth graders and has a lot of it. And I was working with the school district in uh, California helping them apply this. So he might be interesting given that that's kind of a focus for your audience. He can in some ways talk more about this and what it looks like in the educational space than I can because he's actually done it for a number of years. And so I love that you've got kids who come in from recess saying, Johnny went out of the sweet spot, you know, or oh. you know, they, they, it's just part of the language in a sixth grade class, which is really quite remarkable. We talked about this Indianapolis journal practice where you're noticing where your brain gets things wrong. He did that with kids, and I think they were better at it than adults. Yeah, not as much ego there, right? They actually kind of get, they think it's funny, right? Hey, my brain goofed up again, you know. So uh, someone stole my pencil. My brother says that's almost every year that'll happen. Someone stole my pencil, and he'll stop everything. Okay, did they? Let's explore this, right? So it's a great <laughs> example of how. Uh, you know, my brain's telling me a story. Someone stole my pencil. You know, then you realize, you know, my brother's laughing because it's stuck in their ear, right? It's like, someone stole my pencil. I can't find my pencil. Someone someone took it. Well, and that Indianapolis Journal piece that, that you, you shared with us, I mean, you brought it up. Let's talk about it really quickly. That's That was a really cool tactic that I started to employ. I've got schniblets of paper that I keep putting in a little booklet, but tell, tell us that story quickly about what, what that is because I think that's powerful for sure. others. Well, and you brought it up earlier on uh, this idea of intellectual humility and cognitive flexibility, right? And that's a really important thing. I need to be more intellectually humble, a little less connected or attached ego-wise to my current perspective. How do you develop that? How do you strengthen that muscle, though? What's a practice or a process that you can put in place? So an Indianapolis Journal is a record of times your brain goofs it or your brain gets something wrong. You know, I'm trying to get into the wrong car in the parking lot, wondering why my fob won't work. Thanks, brain. Uh, I give the example of you know, grabbing the wrong shopping cart at the grocery store. Instead of looking down at the cart and saying, uh-oh, this obviously isn't my cart, my brain said, well, that's weird. Someone put a purse in my cart. So I actually take a – we have an activity, an Indianapolis journal, where people actually begin to notice and take a certain perverse pleasure in catching it when their brain goofs up. And the idea – someone recently said, are you trying to make us less confident? And I like that question. And I said, no, I guess the way I would put it is I'm trying to make you less overconfident. You know, so the brain keeps a list of when it's right. The brain tends to ignore when it's wrong. So we end up with an overconfident brain. I think an Indianapolis Journal is a way to balance the ledger. We're going to systematically notice when when our brains goof up. 
because it helps us hold our, our views a little more skeptically. It helps us hold our views a little more hypothetically. We're a little less attached to the way our brain is making sense of a situation, the story it's telling us, because we're so conscious of all the times our brain's got it wrong in the past. So it's a very healthy little activity that a lot a lot of groups and teams I work with find really both fun and powerful. Well, it's it's humility. You know, and and it's also in in uh, I don't know if you've read the book Strength to Strength, but it it it's a phenomenal text, and what it does is it explores you know how you can lose ownership and purpose as you age, and when you brought that up, it was just after my book club, and I can tell you about that some other day. But there's a group of guys we get together, Bourbon Boys and Books, and nice. we read leadership texts, and and it was a real struggle for all of us because it 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 brought to this idea that things are, are finite. Like you only get one life and you need purpose. And the Indianapolis journal for me was like, it was humbling as a tactic for me to go back and write down like all these little kind of mental farts that I was having to realize my brain's just taking me in other places with other driving purposes. And this, these little accidents are, are just, are just my mind's way of keeping me grounded. Like you need to think a little bit more here, Theodore. So I like that, yeah, yeah, that intellectual humility, right? It, it changes your relationship to your own thinking, right? I have my thinking, it doesn't have me, because I'm able to look at it a little more objectively. Go, I think a really healthy question to be asking in a conversation is, where's my brain getting something wrong right now? Mm-hmm. Where's my brain? Just assume it is. Where's my brain getting something wrong? Or wrong? Is it, am I hearing someone wrong? They're not. They're, what I'm interpreting, what they're saying, is incorrect. You know, it's what am I getting wrong? And I think that'll keep you more intellectually humble. That'll keep you more curious, more actively interested in the views of others. So yeah, I like that. It's a fun activity. One I came up with by accident, but you know, now it's being used all over the place, and it's one of the more popular practices I get teams to adopt. Yeah, and it's that whole concept of just consistently and constantly farming for dissent, but you don't reflectively do it. You're usually asking other people what won't go well, and then to ask yourself. Yeah. Well, Craig, we believe that everybody with influence is a leader, and you are a great leader, my friend. Three hours with you is going to, you know, it's going to fuel leadership, and and our time with you is fantastic. Your book is phenomenal. I bought it for many people, and I just really, really appreciate your time today. So thanks for joining me on the Smart Thinking Podcast. That's very kind. I really appreciate the invitation. I had a good time, too. This was really fun. You do a nice job with this. So that was was a a really easy... uh, a bit of time to spend. So thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Well, I hope you took a whole bunch of notes because every time I listen to Craig, I, well, I burn through entire notebooks with just different ideas and different metaphors and different ways to lead better and be better for other people. He's pretty awesome. So, let's do some smart thinking. List ways that you can apply the skills you heard Craig talk about in order to serve and support others. Describe people in your life who would benefit from you being able to change your behaviors in order to support the success of those around you. And finally, list the day and time you're going to buy the book, read it, apply it, and be better for others. That's it. That's the Smart Thinking Podcast. Hey, as always, thank you for listening. And please make sure to subscribe to the Well Pennies Music on your music platform. Purchase Craig's book wherever you do buy books. And share this episode with those who need a little bit of fuel to help them be better leaders.
As we close out here today, I, like you, love to learn. And Craig is somebody who, after hearing him, reading his book, applying his processes, and I've even developed tools around it to support different teams, I've just learned to grow and be better, not minimizing things and not trying to win every single time. And now my own executive team and I are getting along better as a result of going through that training and seeing the different ways in which that we act in groups. So get the book, do your best, be there for others, and charge into the storms that you're facing in order to be the best version of yourself so that all of those around you can feel your influence and do the same. Okay, today's music is going to be pretty awesome. Last week, I was sitting in one of my principal network groups working with a group of principals from across the state of Wisconsin when one of the principals came up to me from Slinger, Wisconsin, Joel, and said, hey, do you know about Michael Cameron? I said no, and Joel said, you got to look him up on iTunes. He recorded the song, Tell Me What That Says About You, while he was a junior at his house. He's currently a senior in high school. Take a listen to this song. You're going to love it. Say what you want about me, but I'm not what you say. I tried to hold on to this love, but you threw it all away. So when you're ready, when you're ready, tell me something I don't know. But don't say never loved you. That's a lie, and I know you know. I gave you my car to take through the city. I gave you my love when you felt unlucky. Gave you all the things that I know I could do. Every day I put up a fight. If you couldn't sleep, I'd stay up all night. But you left me when I still loved you. So tell me what that says about you When you're driving home, remember what's really true When you kiss that boy, tell him just what you do You find a man that kisses lips and holds his hand, breaks his heart in two Tell me what that says about you about
And you'll never get back the way that I used to When you find a man, don't break his heart in two It only says more about you